Every day, I hear stories from people that are in healthcare hell, whether they're trying to find doctors, try to get an appointment for a doctor, trying to get insurance approval for whatever test or procedure they need, let alone the high cost of drugs. It pulls people's hair out. They're going crazy. Meanwhile, all of this was bad enough until COVID came along and made things even worse. Well, how do you survive this hell? How do you become your own best patient advocate? That's what we're going to talk about today. I'm Sarah Heiner, and this is the Bottom Line Advocator Podcast. Don't forget, rate and review us, and please tell your friends about this, okay, because this is really important information. Thanks so much. Hello, Facebook. Happy Thursday. It's so good to see everybody. I, I feel like it's been forever. Somehow the weeks cycle. It's like time goes in a heartbeat and time takes forever. I don't know what you all are experiencing, but for me, it's just this kind of continuum. And last week feels like forever ago, and then it flashes, and then suddenly it's Thursday. It feels like the week just started. Anyway, so I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad that you're here to join me today. You'll see um, my friend Amy Dixon on the screen right now. We're going to introduce her in just one second. We're going to talk today about patient advocacy and the challenges to get through the healthcare system because, as everybody knows, it ain't so easy. Um, Trying to get doctor's appointments, trying to get approvals, tests, prescriptions, you name it, it is a nightmare. And Amy, uh, unfortunately, has become a grand expert of it because of her own life. Um, so we will get to that in one second. Let me just remind you uh, a couple of things. One is we've got this growing library of these Facebook lives and videos. So they are in the library on our Facebook page, on the Bottom Line Inc. Facebook page. So you can always go back to find them, share them, let other people know that they're there because we've got some really great experts and important topics that we're talking about. If easier, we have the same library on YouTube, Bottom Line Inc. Follow us over there. And I've actually got hundreds of other videos Um, all sorts of tips and past interviews that I've done. Um, So you can go on over to YouTube as well and get great information. Um, Let's see what else I want to tell you. So if you have questions for Amy through this, put them on in the chat box. Somebody is, what I call it Flintstones technology because there's a human behind the box. I can't look at two screens at one time. I'm just not that good at it. So somebody will be texting me. So if I'm looking down, it's because I'm looking at what they're telling me to be bringing a question and I'm not really texting with my children, texting with my husband. No, you're all my attention and Amy's all my attention. So um, let me tell you all about Amy Dixon who is standing there and she's the one, the one armed hat wearing uh, <laughs> Amy. Um, I do read the bullet points because everybody has such important points. She's got such an extensive bio. So I want you to know important thing about Amy. So check this out. Amy is blind. She doesn't look it, but she is. She's a U.S. paratriathlon national team member. She's hopefully going to be on the Tokyo 2020 team at the 2020 Olympics if she can get over the shoulder thing she's fighting right now. Um, She's a national champion, and she's a seven-time gold medalist. And she didn't even start this stuff until well into her 20s, 20s, 30s. 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 She didn't start this stuff. So um, she's just an amazing human being. Uh, She, at age 22 was going along having her great life and she was struck with a rare form of uveitis, which is an autoimmune eye disorder, which basically says you're gonna be blind. And her whole life had to change in a heartbeat. Um, Between her her treatment for the eye disease, including a heavy use of steroids, actually created other health challenges as happens to so many people. You get a cascade of of side effects and then you get given another drug and then you're on this horrible merry-go-round. she has undergone, get this, 33 surgeries, testing procedures, and tens of thousands, 33 surgeries, a ton of testing procedures, and tens of thousands of dollars in prescriptions that have been filled, and most of which have required a great deal of self-advocacy and savvy, including this morning. Um, in addition to training for, to, uh, for what is now the Tokyo 2021 Paralympics, Amy is a frequent speaker on issues including patient advocacy and also decisive thinking when facing challenges. Uh, you can learn more about Amy and her incredible story at amydixonusa.com. And if you want to donate, so an interesting tidbit, athletes, Olympic athletes have to do their own fundraising. The government actually doesn't support our athletes. So if you go onto that, that page, amydixonusa.com, there is a link in there to donate and help Amy to get to Tokyo because it is expensive, especially for a blind athlete where you not only have to get yourself there, but you have to get your guide there as well. So it's double trouble in terms of raising money. (sighs) Welcome, my friend. It's so good to see you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. You know, the funny thing is, I'll digress for a second. I was talking about the the library of YouTube videos that we have, and we have videos in there of you and me about five years ago when you were kind of starting. You were were earlier on in your your Olympic 
um, you just been put onto the national team, I think, but we yep. were actually talking about wine because you were Somali <laughs> at one point in your life. Yes. And so if anybody wants some amazing information about selecting wine, wine glasses, and oh, by the way, how to clean wine glasses, we'll post that. Actually, we'll, I'll post that into the chat here in terms of because it's the best trick on how to clean a wine glass, um, which I hate doing. Anyway, so that's so funny. So now here we are, though, years later, let's talking about advocacy. So give everybody, I gave kind of a high level in bullet points, but in your own words, please, Amy Dixon, um, give them your story. Tell them like what, what led you on this path and what you've been through in terms of what you've experienced and, and how you got to this conversation now. So, yes. Yeah, so, as you know, I, I'm an eye disease patient, and so 90% of patients with uveitis, inflammatory eye disease caused by an autoimmune condition, have related um, irritable bowel disease and also underlying other uh, autoimmune conditions such as lupus, ankylosing spondylitis, rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, they're all connected, unfortunately. And so uh, I was diagnosed with IBSD, irritable bowel syndrome with diarrhea, uh, seven years ago, and then more recently, ankylosing spondylitis, and which is a disease that basically attacks your joints, kind of like rheumatoid arthritis, uh, and eventually can cause spinal fusion. So uh, really challenging, obviously. Uh, I was 22 when I was diagnosed. I was, uh, had my whole life ahead of me, was in school for pharmacy, ironically. Um, and so they were convinced that I was going to be totally blind within a year. And so I had to change career paths and actually ended up working at, for 20 years as a sommelier in the wine industry because I knew that having my nose, my palate would always keep a roof over my head. And so it was a, a really smart career choice and a great, great plan B, you know, when life throws you a curve like that and, uh, and very satisfying. And then I, my disease came out of remission. Uh, it was put into remission by high dose steroids, as you mentioned before. Um, the idea is to suppress the immune system, to stop it from uh, attacking the eye and also to reduce inflammation and steroids for better or worse are the best drug at doing that, but they don't just target the eye, as you know, they can target the entire body. It's hard, hard to isolate. So I had a variety of side effects, um, including adrenal insufficiency. I ended up with osteoporosis. Um, so the next level of drugs that were more recently developed are called these anti-TNF or biologic medications. You've probably heard of drugs like Humira. Uh, that's the most common one that you see advertised on television. Um, that is uh, a drug that's very popular and, and used for my disease as well. It can cause malignancy as well, is one of the side effects. It's an immunosuppressant. It basically suppresses. It's an immunosuppressive drug. It's called a biologic anti-TNF drug. Uh, it's usually used in combination with another type of chemotherapy drug, such as cytoxin or cyclosporine or methotrexate. And I ended up with a malignancy within 90 days of starting the medication, at which point I put the, a stop to all the treatment. And I said to the doctors, the treatment's clearly worse than the disease having cancer is a lot worse than being blind. And so uh, luckily at that point, I happened to have technology caught up with my disease and a surgeon in Boston invented these implants that is a steroid device that gets surgically implanted in the eye. And it it's a time release capsule that releases steroid directly into the eye and controls the inflammation right at the source. And so I was a very good candidate for this surgery and had my first surgery, I believe, six years ago. And subsequently, I've now had 33 surgeries um, because not only to continue to replace those implants, I have developed glaucoma as secondary to uveitis, which is a known side effect of uveitis. Um, I, I don't say, you know, everybody says, are you crazy to say that you're lucky? Well, I am lucky because I have, I live in the United States where we have excellent health care for better or worse. It's very expensive, but it, it's very effective. And we have some of the best uh, minds and, and uh, researchers here. Um, so I, if I was in New Zealand or Australia or in the UK, I would have been completely blind 10 years ago. I'm the first patient with my rare eye disease to have any usable vision over the age of 40. Wow. And so that's because I am stubborn. <laughs> I happen to be educated. Um, and I unfortunately or fortunately now know how to work the system. And so I spend my time now, um, I run an organization called Glaucoma Eyes International that helps other eye disease patients navigate the system and help them get access to low or no cost medications, help them get transportation to specialists around the world if they need to hop on a plane or a bus or a train to get there. Um, and also teaching the management of their disease, whether that's surgical uh, with medications or otherwise. Um, 
and just try to provide resources and information for people. So my goal, uh, especially after I retire, <laughs> after the hopeful Olympics next summer, is to try to help people sort of jump the line and understand how to navigate a very complex system uh, from insurance companies and doctors and, and really understand that you're in the driver's seat. We're in the United States where it's not a government subsidized healthcare system. So you're paying for this. You're paying for a service. And so therefore you deserve to get service. And so to stop being a victim and realize that you really, you really are in the driver's seat. I think that's such an important point. And we'll talk about that as we go through this. But yes, we all, we all get chicken from our doctors. And this is one of the biggest challenges we have because the doctors are deified as they should be in some ways. They have grand knowledge. They hold our lives literally in our hands. But we just kind of nod like little, you know, little sheep. White coat syndrome, right? Yes. yes. They see the white coat and they clam up. Like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. Now, it's just phenomenal. They're in your 20s that you were navigating all of this. And in fact, there was another interesting part of it because you and I have talked about this. You're, you had conflicting diseases. The treatment for one was going to harm the others. I recall the uveitis and the glaucoma. Exactly. Yes. So yes. the level of sophistication that you needed to be in collaboration. To yes. Yeah. yeah. Between doctors that really had very differing opinions and big egos and it's managing that and trying to sort through that and get to the facts and really, you know, literally sit down and do a pro con list. I mean, very simple as that. Okay. If this, then that, and, and I, and you have to make it as simple and black and white as possible so that even for them, you know, because there gets to be egos. As soon as egos and emotions get involved, things get very murky. And, and the problem with medicine is not just a science, it's an art. And so there's, they don't have all the answers and they don't know everything. And especially if you're dealing with something new or rare or difficult to treat, you're sort of in uncharted territory. And so, you know, they, there's the famous line, well, everybody's different is, is what I, right. <laughs> is the response when you say, well, what's going to be the side effect? Well, you know, we haven't heard of that before, but it's, you know, so when you hear that your head wants to explode. So it's learning to navigate that and getting down to facts, not emotion and, and really understanding um, your, your path forward. So like, I think, what, sorry. and it sounds like when you, like just walking into it, no matter what the conversation with the doctor is, is that you need to have your antenna up so that in oh. terms of, listening to what they're saying and questioning what they're saying and not, you know, not merely accepting it blindly, that always asking them about what's your experience with this. Like, why are you saying that? Why are you recommending this? Like talk about that, the challenge, like the questions that you would deal with when you go to the doctors. Oh gosh. So, I mean, so are you asking me what to do before you prepare to go to the doctor or, or what do you, what's I don't the, know. I just jumped four steps ahead. Cause my head, like there's the, yeah, the, yeah. the level of, of directions with this. So actually, let me back up. Yeah. Back up. Yeah. I want to make sure we, we keep this systematic for people. So when you first started, like you were incredibly lucky because you had a great doctor that you started with and a great rapport, right? Exactly. So let's take people to that step one with their doctor in terms of rapport, in terms of being able to be comfortable, ask questions, just whether you're sick or not, advocacy starts with your wellness visits as well. It's not just about sick and it's sick and it's not just about horrendous sickness, right? So start with the patient relationship. Two things. Number one, who do you trust the most on your medical team? Is that your... Is that your mom or like, or your dad? Is that your primary care physician? Is that your G, uh, your GP or your pediatrician? You know, who is it? Your dermatologist who you think just really gets you, you know, who gets you and understands Amy Dixon, the patient and the person and like, and as a whole person and two, who is the most knowledgeable for what you have? whether or not you have a relationship with them or not, whether or not the guy's a jerk and has horrible bedside manner, you know, um, which unfortunately with a lot of these top doctors that are more, once you get to a really high level of doctor where they're mostly researchers or department heads and things like that, unfortunately, a lot of times that comes with like a lack of personality because they're not really used to dealing with patients. They're actually used to working in a laboratory or clinical setting and not seeing people. Right. So you have to sort of, again, go who gets me and understands me and is going to advocate for me and who I like and trust and who's the most knowledgeable and then get those two people talking, right? 
hopefully that's one person. It would be great if that's one person, but we all know that that like that unicorn doctor sometimes doesn't exist. And if you have them, please hold on to them and don't ever leave them. And even if they go to a different insurance company, follow them because that's, that's such a blessing. So for me, <laughs> when I got diagnosed, um, I had a great relationship with my neurologist and I didn't have any health insurance at the time when I got diagnosed with my disease. So the, so he was, he actually, that's my guide dog. I have, we need to tell Woodstock to uh, stop guarding for bears. <laughs> and he has an amazing guide dog named Woodstock. He's a German shepherd. He's absolutely beautiful. Incredible. He's an award-winning dog. You guys have won competitions. Yes, he is. He's, he's not only do I compete for Team USA, he competes for the American Kennel Club. So. And uh, wins. Well, you both get winners, right? <laughs> Runs to the family, and now he thinks he's in charge of the door, uh, the FedEx guy. So bear watch. We we call it bear watch in my house. <laughs> exactly. It's very 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 fun. The highlight of his day is watching the door. So um, so saying so. Hopefully you find that unicorn doctor who gets you. And for me, it was my neurologist, and he had nothing to do with eye disease, but he was my advocate in that when I walked into him with these weird symptoms going on in my eyes. He canceled all of his afternoon appointments and he actually marched me downstairs to the ophthalmologist that day. And I would not have gone on my own. And he knew I was, gonna, was not going to go because <laughs> my dog, um, he knew I wasn't going to go because I couldn't afford the visit. Right. So, you know, it was really, really important that I, I, I went because they thought I detached my retina and they thought I needed emergency surgery. This has gone so, back early on when you were 22 and you had some symptoms and, and ignored them yeah. just like every 22 year old. Yeah, exactly. Right. You know, I thought it was going to go away. I thought I was overtired. Uh, I thought I was just clumsy bumping into things. And so, you know, had he not, you know, had the, the fortitude to, you know, force me to go and see an ophthalmologist, it would have been a very different outcome for me and I would have been totally blind within the first year. So find that person that you're comfortable talking to that's going to advocate for you. And if they're not an expert in the area that you need them to be, at least get them to help you connect with people that are and do your due diligence and, and you know, your health insurance, you know, whether they're at a network in network, find the best for what you have. If it's, uh, uh, you know, like osteosarcoma, which is a bone cancer, right? So find the best, within a hundred mile radius of your house that's you know within a drivable or transportation distance find the best for osteosarcoma then see if they are covered by your insurance and then see if you can and if they're not see if you, if you can afford to go see them at least for an initial consult and then find somebody that they recommend locally to follow you or have your person that you trust follow you very important get the best i mean like if you're messing around with a difficult diagnosis and or a long-term diagnosis you need the best that you can afford, and you also need somebody who, who will listen to you as a person, like who's not just going to treat Amy Dixon the patient, but Amy Dixon the person that understands that I'm not only here with a disease, but I'm also on the U.S. Paralympic team, and I'm traveling every 10 days on a plane. I can't be immunosuppressed when I'm around thousands of people and racing and training 26 hours a week, you know, swimming, biking, running, and uh, lifting weights, you know, six, six hours a day, seven days a week. It's just not... You know, so somebody who gets that. So how did you find the specialists, right? So it's not so easy as you were needing to find different people. Because where do people even start? Like they say, they ask your doctor for a second opinion, and then they call up their best friend that's up the road or whatever. Or, you know, they're like, what's the best way to find that best person? And you, again, were an incredible researcher, incredible tenacity to be able to find it. But a lot of people don't even know where to start. I'm not a huge fan of Google because Google can be a slippery slope, but at the same time, it can be also a, a good guideline for you. You know, there's always those top docs, you know, you know, ratings and things like that. So you can- Well, there's John Connolly's America's Top Doctors, which we work with John a lot. And that's actually a great resource. Exactly. You can list that, go on those lists, um, find, find those people, find people that maybe if it's not the head guy, somebody that's in their practice, because then at least you know that they're conferring with that head guy. You know, Dr. Yanuzi was the guy that I saw in New York City for my disease. And initially I saw one of his colleagues who, who was covered by my insurance, but Yanuzi wasn't. So those are ways of finagling seeing that guy or that person, right. that woman, uh, to, to manage your disease, but getting in the same practice. So those lists, I think, are really, really helpful. Word of mouth, I think, is great, but 
anecdotal, you know, like, oh, my friend goes to such and such doctor. I don't, I, unless that person has the same disease as you, I don't think that's a great way to go. It's like your neighbor says, oh, I have this great dentist or whatever. I really think that you should do your due diligence, whether it's, um, you know, by a jury of their peers that they're elected to these lists or by other doctors. I think that that's, you know, or, you know, whether they've, they're the chairman or they're, or, you know, the other thing is if they're, um, a, you know, associate professor at a university. Those are things that I look at to make sure, like they're obviously working on continuing education right. at the top of their field. If, if they're going back and teaching, um, th those are things to look for. Did you look, did you look at all again, you, you had the, the gift, I'll call it, of having a fairly rare thing. A rare, yeah. a somewhat yeah. rare in a rare. Yeah, I was yeah. So, and I happened to be in the right place at the right time. I lived in I lived in Connecticut, and the guy that named and discovered my disease happened to be in New York City, only an hour's drive away. So, yeah. and, and my pediatrician was the one that actually found him for me. So, is is another strategy to be to to look for research, like who's researched this stuff? There's there's PubMed, which is a great resource from the NIH. Of, that has basically all research that's out there. So do, is it a strategy to, to research those, um, um, to research the, the disease and then see what research is out there and then look to see who the researchers are and where they are, question one. Question two, did you ever join like uveitis users groups? Or something. Yes. Like, look for other people that have the disease and then talk to that group. support groups, like Facebook has a great, right. um, huge array of support groups for every, like every disease on the planet for fibromyalgia, for lupus, for sarcoidosis, uh, you name it, um, rheumatoid arthritis. There's, a, there's literally, there's a rheumatoid arthritis group for runners. I mean, right. like there's very specific groups on there that you can join. I mean, literally just go in your search bar on Facebook and you'll find, you'll find your community. Um, and that's also a great resource for people that, you know, live all over the world that may be suffering from your disease that may be like, hey, I've seen this guy or this guy. And once you start to see a common theme and do, again, check it against your list, you, you may be able to find a really great specialist in your area. And I go on to uveitis.org um, and he, my doctor in Boston, then I can see what doctors have trained under him or done their fellowship with him and are in mm -hmm. Sydney, perhaps, or yeah. in that I can see if I can't afford to go to Boston. So that's, that's another way, like go Google under your actual disease name and see who's, who's on the board of, uh, you know, the American Board of Ophthalmology or the American Board of Dermatology and find out, okay, wow, that's like the guy. How do I get to see him or somebody who studied under him? One of the great things that's happened out of this pandemic, there haven't been many great things, but one of the great things is telemedicine. Have oh. you had, I mean, that to me seems like a blessing for someone like you who needs to have for second opinions for being able to consult if they don't have to touch you that right but to be able to to get access to people that otherwise again would be cost prohibitive to because they're just not in your area you can't get to them yes telemedicine is i mean i'm not a huge fan of covid but man it has been a game changer for people like myself who right have an autoimmune disease where a doctor's office is the last place you want to be right around other sick people um and b i don't drive because i'm visually impaired so drive you know getting transportation is expensive i have to arrange handicap transit to and from or a neighbor or uber um and which can be unreliable and and timing can be challenging with that um and now for people who work, for people who work and now suddenly are, are having to teach their kids at home full time you know how the heck do you get uh, two hours of your day, you know, 20 minutes to drive to the appointment, an hour at the appointment, maybe you need to get lab work done. I mean, all that stuff. Now you can do it at home. Yeah. You even have lab kits where you can finger stick yourself and send it in. I mean, and like stool kits, all kinds of things that you can do at home and uh, for most routine medical care. And, and that's such a game changer for people who can't get vacation time or, or personal time off from their employer to go to a doctor's office. And again, for a non-orthopedic issue or non-gynecologic or where they don't need to physically examine you, um, or maybe you, for your initial visit, you have a physical exam, but now for follow-ups, rather than schlepping back and forth for multiple visits, now I can do it telemedicine. Where for me, when I lived in Connecticut and I was going to Yale New Haven Hospital, I lived in Greenwich, Connecticut. It was a 75-minute train ride each way and a mile walk to the train station, a mile walk from the train station to the hospital, and I had to be there twice a week. And then the office visit was about three hours. So you're looking at a seven hour day twice a, twice a week, and I had to stop working because my employer said, I, you can't work, you know, 
three days a week doesn't work out. So I had to go out on disability because I had so many follow-up appointments. Right. Um, and so that's very disruptive if you have a difficult illness. So how do you get past when, you, when you're getting to the top dogs and it's really difficult to get in them? And you know we'll talk about insurance in a bit, but they all have their gatekeepers. Some of it, some of it is plowing through insurance, but some of it is charming your way or, or being shrewd somehow. How do you get past the gatekeepers of these super tough guys? And when you get to them, in my experience, because I know a lot of these top guys, they're super nice. Like they're, their heads are, are in their world, but they're great and they want nothing more than to be able to help people. And that, like people don't realize how, what the lives of doctors are really like, which is, I mean, I, I challenge the medical system regularly, but these doctors work super hard and their lives are not their own either. So how do you get around the gatekeepers to get into these top dogs? Cookies. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, right? Bribery? <laughs> not just, well, that's fine. I mean, do you send them cookies beforehand with a note that says, hey, I really want to get in here? And like it's nurses, you know, they say get to get to the nurse, not the doctor. Staff and the front desk staff, those like literally, I mean, they are so overworked and so underthanked and they get every annoyed and in pain person that's calling. It's desperate. Everybody wants to get in right away. Nobody can get in right away because he's seeing 30, 40 patients a day. I mean, like they're slammed all day. And so that nurse is dealing with a million Amy Dixons on the phone that's all have very painful, challenging illnesses. And right. so how do you, that's super stressful for them. So making sure you show appreciation when you meet them and that you're incredibly nice and incredibly patient with them because realize that they've, you're probably their 30th phone call that day. And so, and for you, it's the, it's, it's the one phone call. So make sure you're putting, I mean, I, I hate to say it, like just be, kill them with kindness. Even if you're annoyed and patient and you just want to get in, you, you have to, like, un unfortunately, that's how you're going to have, it's a little bit manipulative, right. but it's also very true. I mean, you have to understand who you're dealing with and, and what they're up against. And so, I mean, like, I always bring cookies every holiday. I bring cookies after surgery. I bring a bottle of champagne at New Year's, like, for the front desk staff, um, because they can get me in. They're like, listen, he, he's, he can see you during his lunch break tomorrow. How about that? And I'm like, thanks, that'll work. Or how about you come in before he sees other patients at 7.30? Does that work for you? I'm like, yes, I'll be here at 7.30. They will find a way. Like, you know, if, if they like you and you're kind to them and you show them appreciation and are thankful and, you know, and, and explain to them your circumstance. Listen, hey, like, you know, I've got three kids at home and I've got to get them on the bus by nine o'clock. Like, I, I can't, I can't be here between nine and 10. Like, can you do something at lunchtime or can you do something before work? You know, they're, they're people too. So again, you know, just, you know, explain your situation, kill your dog. Um, kidding. Excuse me one second. Oh, don't you just love Facebook lives? Oh. Who here loves working from home and, and uh, this is, uh, like, at least it's not a toddler. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> you just wanted to be let in here. My, my dog was just feeling left out. Hi, what's up? Uh, well, let's say hi to him. <laughs> oh goodness. So he's coming in to say hi. So I mean, again, that, that's, I mean, it sounds overly simple, but it's really not like you, you, you need to make friends and they they are the gatekeepers. They will get you in. Um, and again, once you're in with the doctor, you know, they need to see that you're a person too. I say like, Oh, I'll see you back. And for instance, I saw a pain management specialist this morning and I explained to him exactly what I'm doing. I said, I need to get back to training as soon as possible. I have this shoulder situation happening. I've already lost four weeks. I can't lose another four weeks. He's like, yeah, he's like, let's, He's like, I don't have anything for four weeks. And he walks me out to his secretary. He says, let's fit her in on my lunch break in two weeks. Nice. He's like, double book me. And so that, so again, so they, so making them understand that you're a person. Right. Well, so and let me just say, like, this is you, you are probably one of the most complex patients of all time. Yeah. But yeah. these same I strategies work, huh? <laughs> for good and for bad. Look what you're learning. Um, but these same strategies and tactics are important for everybody. Again, even if, it's just your annual physical. And even if it's just your regular doctor, that everybody needs to still advocate for just the most basic in terms of rapport, in terms of being nice to the front desk staff. Yeah. So, you know, when you go in, even when you're in the office, being kind and patient and loving and having like talk to them and how are they and all that sort of stuff. That's, that works at every level. It's not just, I want everybody out there to understand. It's not just 
Be flexible. Show your flexibility by saying, hey, listen, if I can't get in to see Dr. Rogers, can I get in to see the PA, the physician assistant, or does, is there a nurse practitioner that I can see? Because sometimes, like, they'll see you and maybe the doctor will pop his head in, right? Or consult with the, with the doctor and come back into the office. So give them, show them that you're flexible and that you're willing, that you're, you're to get in um, and show them that you're flexible. Tell them that you're willing to come before office hours, during lunch, see the nurse practitioner, the PA. Um, tell them you're willing to do a televisit if that's, if that's quicker or easier. Also, ask them to add you to a cancellation list. And I, I, I've been trying to get in with a rheumatologist for three months, and I got on the cancellation list and every morning at 8.15 a.m. I set an alarm for myself, and I call their office at 8.16, and their phone line's open, and I say, do you have any cancellations for the day? You have to be persistent. Right. It's, it's a lot of work, unfortunately. It but, is, but your health is important. And if you're yeah. dealing with something uh, acute and immediate mm -hmm. or something really disruptive of your life where you're missing work, then you need to, you need to fight. Yeah, totally. Um, I want to talk for one more minute about relationships with doctors. You made a comment before about, again, a lot of the doctors are busy. They're not so personable. It's really hard. I mean, ideally... You want, to, you want to have a doctor that you can connect to and that you feel comfortable with, especially for your primary care physician or your OBGYN or somebody like that that you're seeing on an ongoing basis. Yeah. So I presume if your advice would be that if you don't, if, if you don't feel comfortable with them, go find someone else. Although yes. in this day and age of insurance, it's not so easy. I know when my daughter was trying it to find- is. I don't buy that. I don't buy that. There's plenty of, uh, there's plenty of doctors out there. there uh, your insurance yeah. doesn't cover only one orthopedic surgeon. It probably covers so, 30. That's true. Although I had a daughter, my daughter was in New York and trying to find, I guess, just a PCP or an OBGYN or someone. And she really had a hard time find, finding somebody that the insurance would have available. There definitely is a doctor shortage going on. Ideally, mm -hmm. you're able to find someone. But yeah. the point I want to make, again, to your point about being nice to, to the doctors, even if, God, if they're a jerk or they're arrogant or whatever, suck it up, buttercup, that you need to be able to, you need to find a way to have them love you. You're paying not for their personality, you're paying for their right. brain. Right? Yeah. You don't have to, like I had Dr. Douglas Jabs, he's one of the most brilliant minds. For those of you who remember the show that used to be on Fox called House, yeah. and, uh, and that doctor was this brilliant researcher and, and diagnostician, and, but he was a jerk to his patients and to his fellows and everybody he worked with, but he could solve any problem. And so you kind of want the Dr. Houses of the world, and then you hope that one of his fellows or his residents is right. a super person and I happened to have that magic formula. I had him overseeing my care and one of his fellows, Dr. Batnagar, was just lovely. He gave me his cell phone number. He told me to call him Friday after chemo and tell me how tell him how I felt. He was and if I didn't call him, he would send me a text message to see how I was feeling. Right. So it is possible to get in with those challenging personalities, uh, the research types, and manage them that way by being seen by their PA or another one of the doctors in their practice and then checking in with them for big stuff when you need it. Which is a great strategy. I've also found, frankly, that sometimes I take it as a challenge when someone's really cranky. Yeah. Break that guy. Yeah. I can get a smile out of that person. <laughs> yeah. You may not, but it's a fun right. little game to be able to play. Again, if you're going to have a relationship with them or you have to see them as you did with this right. doctor Jabs, then you, know, you can't, you got to go for what, you know, know that you, you need that person. Yeah, and I found, like I figured out finally after two years of seeing this guy and him being very dismissive and 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 really professional with me that he was a big tennis fan and then we and then he then once I got him talking about tennis he wouldn't stop so and it changed our relationship. Isn't entirely. that so funny when you yeah, find so, when you find then, the humanity? Yeah, so you have to find you have to look for it if it's a picture of their kid on the wall or you know something in their office or like a vacation photo. Oh, did you go to Antigua or like oh I've never been. What's it like? You know anything, try to find something that sort of humanizes you to, to them a little bit is really, really helpful. Because, again, in their defense, they're seeing 20, 30, 40 right. patients a day. They have to stay in a schedule. It's challenging for them to sit there and be like, so, Amy, what's going on in your life? But, you know, like, and I have doctors that do that, but, yeah. you know, like, and they'll just kind of screw up their own schedule and their secretary's heads are exploding in the hallway and we've got patients waiting out <laughs> You know, that, and that does happen, but respect that they do have a limited amount of time and understand that, like, if you forget to say something to them or ask them something, make sure either you write it down and you, we'll, we'll go through the step-by-step -step process so that, I, that I, but 
but talk to the nurse. Like you always have the nurse, you always have one of the fellows and I'd be like, make sure every question you need to get asked is asked before you leave that office. If not to him or her, to their fellow, to the resident, to the nurse before you go. So let's talk about this. So you've got, um, you have, a, what, what should you bring to all your appointments? You have your list of what you bring to every appointment. Yes. So, um, yeah, I've, let me make sure, go through my, uh, my notes here. Um, because <laughs> it's so many things. So yeah, so you want to get your, your, your list of questions for the doctor, uh, everything you need to know about your disease, treatment, management, symptoms, side effects, um, you know, what could happen with sur surgery versus drugs versus all, all, all those things. You want to do all, all that bread and butter stuff, write it all down, all the questions you have, um, how many patients they have that have had successful outcomes. They may or may not be willing to share that information with you. Um, do they have a patient support group that they run? You know, those, those are things to, to, to write down. So get all your questions onto a piece of paper. Give yourself plenty of time in advance. Maybe hop into one of those support groups that I mentioned uh, for your disease and, and ask, ask in that support group, what should I ask the doctor before I go? Can be really helpful. And then bring some, if you can bring somebody it's practical to do so, I highly recommend it because we, like, we call it white coat syndrome. As soon as we see somebody in a white coat, everybody clams up. Yep. They get nervous, they get intimidated, they're, they don't want to ruffle any feathers, they don't want to seem disrespectful by asking too many questions or taking up too much of the doctor's time. You're paying for that visit, that, that time is yours, you own it. So mm -hmm. you do what you got to do. But if you can bring somebody with you in case you do freeze up, can grab your list of questions out of your hands and can ask those or or they may have additional questions themselves that you hadn't thought of you know invite them into the conversation if you feel comfortable sharing that with them uh, so let me just add on to that also eyes and ears because sometimes i'll walk out of there i'll be like how many times a day do they have say i have to take that or you know even if you try to write things down sometimes you forget and so it's good to have a second set because they may have heard it differently than you did um and i think that's really helpful totally so let me, let me add, before you get to the next one, which I love the next one, um, let me add on to that also what I totally just forgot. Oh, I know. From the doctor's point of view, again, when I've talked with doctors, they really appreciate patients who are prepared. Yes. Because yeah. of their limited time and they're a rush. So if yeah. they say, what's, what's wrong? And they go, well, I don't really know. Versus here's my question, boom, boom, boom. Then the doctor, back to their receptivity at your questions and your time, far more pleased. And let me back up one step before the visit. One thing that I, I was thinking of today, because I, I just went through this myself, make sure before you get to that visit, if there are pertinent scan, like if you, if you bring referred, especially from another physician and say they're not, there's a, there's a um, information sharing system in the medical industry called Epic. And most doctors are on it. Um, it's a software that they share, you know, scans and lab results and, and, and notes, but not every doctor is on it. And so I think it's important for you to have hard copies either faxed or emailed in advance to your doctor before you go there with enough that they can add it to your chart. Don't send it to before and expect him to suddenly be an expert about you. Right. Not fair. It's like they have other patients that they're dealing with and they're not going to be doing this at midnight before your visit. So send it as, as early as you can before your visit. Any scans, any x-rays, any MRIs, lab results, off, office notes from other doctors, anything pertinent to the big picture that they need to know, get it to them so that you make the most of your time there. Right. Um, so yeah, next, when you are there, bring snacks. And, I, and this sounds really silly, but it's not because- I think it's I, brilliant. More <laughs> doctor's offices, it, it, I had uh, Mount Sinai, I was going there, there for chemo treatment and every visit was six or seven hours. Mm -hmm. And no cafeteria in that part of the hospital. So trying to find food and you were afraid that they were gonna call you back in for another scan right. or their test in any minute so you needed to be nearby the doctor in that waiting room and so unless you have another person who can run out and get that stuff for you make sure you're, you're in there for the long haul i look like i'm having a buffet <laughs> well you're an athlete but sometimes the doctor's office gets backed up and suddenly and it's annoying as anything yes we have and there's been, a, we, i want to with my hunger and then you yeah. all of a sudden low blood sugar and then you start right. to get what you wanted to say right. Like that just compounds everything. And then you're frustrated because you're hungry and then you just want to get out of there and you, you don't want to rush. This is an important piece of your time. You want to be as focused and as not distracted as possible. And that means bring some snacks. You know, what I bring rice cakes with peanut butter. Um, I bring protein bars. I bring bottled water that I can refill from a fountain in there. 
you know, all those things I keep on hand because you just never know. I mean, they might have an emergency surgery and you just, you know, unless you're prepared to come back another day, you need to be prepared. You might be there longer than you expected. So, Absolutely. yep, totally. Um, so the next thing I said is, is obviously a notebook, um, a notebook uh, so that you can write everything down. The, the doctor tells you because again, white coat syndrome, we tend to forget half of what they say to us. So write it down and they, they, and they're happy to go back and spell things for you if you don't understand how something's spelled or pronounced. Always ask. They're very pleased to see that you're vested in your care. Like doctors really appreciate this. Um, and then what, what were we going about? Um, oh, about you know, notebooks and scans. Yep. Um, second opinions. So you want to talk about that? Let's talk about yes. Let's, yeah. Well, so we actually we talked about second opinions already. Yeah. Yeah. I think well, but second opinion. Don't ever feel afraid to go to another doctor. So you're, again, you're paying for this service. Um, you're in the driver's seat. Um, I think it's important to have, for your own peace of mind to have a little bit of consensus. It can muddy the waters. I have three different specialists right now dealing with the shoulder, and I've got three different opinions, or two, two of the same opinions and one, one different opinion. And so that gets challenging because you can get the, the waters muddied a bit, right? So really picking your team, picking your, your the most knowledgeable for what you have. Um, but when you're facing a really difficult diagnosis that's going to be a long-term diagnosis, I think it's important where expensive medications and loss of travel for surgeries, it's important to have another opinion in there just, just to cover your butt. So again, you talked before, is, is there any secret to being able to get these doctors to talk to each other? Because that's not so easy to do. Um, and be honest, like I, I went and saw another orthopedic surgeon for this shoulder a couple of weeks ago. And I was a little bit nervous about saying, Hey, listen, I, you're not the guy who's going to do my surgery right. <laughs> I'm telling you right now, <laughs> but I know that you're very good. And I, and you've come highly recommended The CEO of the hospital is a friend of mine. And he said, go see him. Like, and, and I, here's a story. I'm thinking about getting this type of injection in my shoulder from, from another doctor. And he says, I know the guy. Well, he goes, he goes, if I were to get an injection, I would get it from him. He goes, I, same thing. He goes, but I trust him infallibly. And he goes, he's a little bit more well-read on this type of procedure. He says, if you're having surgery, I would do the surgery myself. But for the injection, I would go to, go to him. And it was really validating to get that. And he was very comfortable. Like if a doctor doesn't, you know, they have egos, but they also are human beings. And, and if you're upfront with them and not like tricking them into thinking like, hey, you're going to be my guy. Right. Well, it's not going to be your guy. Tell them they're, they're, he or she's not going to be your person. Say, so, listen, I have this doctor, but I'm, I'm not quite sure how I feel about this diagnosis. What are your thoughts? And they, they actually will respect that incredibly. They want your business, but they also want to see you. They're also vested in a good outcome for you. So as you're evaluating these doctors, all right, and in this case, it's multiple doctors for one thing versus coordinating like an oncologist and an, uh, you know, your gynecologist and you're like, you know, coordinating across doctors. But in this case, if you're trying to decide between multiple practitioners for something and there's, we, my husband had needed a procedure a while back and the decision was the guy that's been doing it forever and the young new, like younger, not fresh out of college, but I'll right. call it the new guy who had all the new high tech learning versus yeah. the guy that's been doing it forever. Two very different strategies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and how do you, what's been your experience in terms of going for what's called wisdom versus cutting edge? You know, there's something, there's comfort in something that's been tried and true and tested over decades and decades. Um, and, and, but there's, and there's the unknown of new procedures, but you know, if it's been, if, if, if the FDA is like, I'm a little bit leery of things that are not FDA approved. I'm a little leery of clinical trials and things like that. Uh, especially because I am an athlete that, you know, my livelihood depends on me being able to perform. So I can't afford the risks or the risk outweigh the benefits to right. me of doing an unknown like that. But if you, if you're in a situation where you're sort of in a Hail Mary, like I think that, you know, it, it's worth exploring new avenues. Right. Uh, and it's, again, it's everyone's individual comfort. You know, you know, some people prefer to go to an older, wiser, more tried and true uh, mental approach and somebody wants like the cutting edge. And, and again, that's, that's your own level of comfort. And I have guys, on, men and women on both ends of the spectrum as far as my doctors are concerned. And so I try to do probably a little bit of a mix of both myself. Although most importantly on all of it is their experience. Your experience. Yeah, and, and your level of comfort, your level of comfort as a patient, you know, and, 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 and trusting somebody like that. 
and what their experience has been. I remember when I was pregnant and I needed an amnio and my doctor, I was right on the cusp of whether it was, I was the right age or I was a little bit young, but I really wanted an amnio. And my doctor was trying to discourage me. He had to go through the, you know, no, the stats, it's risky. And, you know, way back when they didn't have digital, you know, they, they do it, they do it with ultrasound, but you know, it still was a little risky. And, uh, he was trying to discourage me and he gave me the stats of how many, how many problems there are when someone does an amnio that you might run into a risk of the side effects and risk to the baby and stuff. And I said, okay, those are the standard stats, but what are your stats? And his individual stats were very different than the reported stats. So, you know, you have to unpeel what their experience is. Yes, agreed. So, all right, let's talk about treatment, all right? So to me, I'm always really nervous. Like if they give you a prescription, because don't forget a lot of their information is coming from the pharmaceutical company for good and for bad. So I've had a lot of doctors that are basically glorified salesmen for the pharma company, which is really unnerving and unsettling. Like, yeah, honestly, if I walk into a waiting room and I see uh 30 pamphlet stacks all over the place of, of every drug from Allergan and, you know, Tevi and Arteva and all these other different farm or Johnson Johnson, my head kind of explodes. So you have to be sure that they're not in the pocket of a pharma pharmaceutical rep. Um, and if they are, make sure that they're paying it forward to you by giving you free samples of these <laughs> you know, like, It's frightening. You know, the, the drug costs, well, we're going to talk from, I want to, we'll ask about the insurance, getting around insurance and insurance approvals on this oh, drug. Yeah. But when you hear how many free programs there are, oh, sure, I got samples. Or call, you know, you watch TV and the ads and they say, if you can't afford it, just call us and we'll work something out for you. And meanwhile, right. some schnook is paying $500 a pill. Right. And for me, you know, the biggest challenge has been that, um, you know, I'm on Medicare and because um, I'm on disability and a social security disability. And so that disqualifies you from any of these um, free drug programs or, or low cost drug programs, because it says eligible for anyone except for Medicare. Right. <laughs> so, which is kind of bizarre because you think that somebody who's disabled and on a, on a fixed income won't be able to afford these meds, which is true. But the government um, doesn't reimburse the same. Yeah, doesn't reimburse the same. So, so that is a really weird, not so great loophole that Medicare kind of it puts you in a really crappy position. Um, the other thing to note is that there are no and low cost programs that each pharma company has that you can apply for based on income, even if you do have Medicare. So, um, for instance, I'm waiting to hear on a particular drug for my shoulder for a chemotherapy drug, and uh, it's covered. I think for once a month injection, but I need twice a month. And so now I need to find a way to supplement that other, you know, it's $1,500 a month per injection. And so I need to find a way to pay for that. And so based on my income, I should qualify for this program, but I have to apply and then you have to, you know, it's, you have to wait. For How do you find those programs? You, directly to the pharmaceutical company's website. Usually whatever, whatever pharma company it is, it represents the drug, you go on there and you, and you know, ask your, ask the front desk person when you're leaving the office for, for either, a number to call or the website and how to apply. So is that a question when the doctor hands you a prescription besides asking, you know, and there's, there's a bunch of questions that bottom line has always written about, about things like, why are you giving me this? Is there a lower cost? You know, a lot of times the doctors, because of the relationship with pharma, give the new one that's new. And, and most of those new ones aren't necessarily so new or different. They changed one little thing so that they could avoid, you know, going generic and competing generic. Right. So I always think that why is the most important. Why are you giving me this? You know, what are the other options? Is there an old one? Yeah. How long am I going to be on it? Is this short term, long term? Uh, With this drug? um, And is there a generic of this drug? And um, is there another brand name that is similar? You know, that let's, for instance, I'm I'm waiting on a drug called Symphony and there's a similar drug called Simzia, same drug, just different company. Right brand names there's no generic for it yet so we're applying for both and seeing which one the insurance company covers more of right so you need to do what besides all of that besides all those questions of why's and double checking is what company is it and then you go back and you do that that's a great idea and put that on put on put that on the nursing staff put that on the doctor's office or the or the medical assistant see if they can they can you know a lot of these uh drugs might cause um need prior authorization and that's on the doctor's office to apply for that for you 
where it does get tricky and where I found myself with a challenge today is that you, you sometimes you have to call and follow up because it takes some time and it gets, you get put in the bottom of the pile or it gets lost in the shuffle. And if you're dealing with something acute, like I'm in a lot of pain right now and we're, we're eager to get this drug in my system as quickly as possible. Um, you know, but it can take weeks to get approval. So a, a well-placed phone call or a well-timed phone call to the right person who happens to be sympathetic from the drug company, they're like, oh yeah, we got the facts on Monday. Let me, let me talk to my supervisor, you know, things like that. So you know, don't be afraid to ruffle a little bit of feathers. Allow the office to do their due diligence. It's going to take them a few days to probably file paperwork and get things started for you. If it's if it's a drug that needs prior authorization, if it's not just a simple call to the pharmacy and you go pick it up. Um, and then after a few days, if you haven't heard anything, check in with the office. If they haven't heard back, call them. Call the call the number yourself. Call the the insurance company yourself and and find out where the status of your 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 drug application is. And so, that can get, mean a lot of moving things along. You'd be surprised how many times I've called. And they're like, it's approved. I said, oh really? I haven't heard anything. They're like, oh, we're going to call tomorrow. I'm like, okay. Well, how about you call today? <laughs> so, it's best to let the doctor's office lead those conversations, and you just stay in touch with them, and then. You go to if you haven't heard in a timely fashion, I would say give them four or five days. You know, like ask ask the doctor's office how long it typically takes to get approval. If you don't hear within that time frame, pick up the phone and call the insurance company yourself and 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 ask how things are how things are going. And are there any secret questions that you need to ask the insurance company? Because after you're done pressing one for this, press two for that, press three for that, sit on hold and get someone. Is get there, someone. Is there a secret level? Do you want to do you want to forget the someone and go straight to someone else or? Uh, the prior authorizations person usually is the person that you want to talk to. Whoever is in the prior authorization department. Okay. That's the department you're going to need. And I see that's the same process for procedures as well as for treatments. I mean, yes. same thing in terms of approval. Procedures and prescriptions. Yeah, yep. exactly. I, I, I'm trying to get an MRI tomorrow morning and we're waiting for my insurance company to approve it. And so I called and they said, oh, it's going to be four or five days. And, and I said, I'm in a lot of pain. She goes, oh, well, we can expedite it. And so she, I said, how long for that? She goes, three or four hours. I said, that sounds great. So, um, yeah, so again, a well-placed phone call can, can mean a lot from the patient because you're not just a statistic then to them. You're not just a name on a page. You're an actual person who, who's making an effort to call. Right. And again, it's a fine line between... This may seem tiresome and annoying and inconvenient to you, but, you know, it... If you have the time and you're not in pain and you're and you're not super sick that you you're starts a medication or wait for a procedure a number of days fine you know let the system do what it's got to do it will eventually work <laughs> in theory but if you're dealing with something that you're uncomfortable or um, that you're quite sick and you and you need some answers you'd prefer some answers sooner than later don't be afraid to t take the the ball in your in your hands and and run with it and, and make the phone calls yourself it, it can it can absolutely you know, change. The oh my goodness. My Woody. Um, you, through all of this, you who were a very hard driving and are a very hard driving person, it's really interesting. You've had to develop, I'll call it endless patience. I mean, just a really, in some ways, as endless, like it's really seems to be a striking and interesting balance of persistence and proactivity and self-advocacy and also acceptance like massive acceptance that sometimes you have to ride the process a little bit yeah i mean i have not uh i have not developed patience through the process of anything i've de developed less patience because now i know how quickly things can happen if you do the work yourself unfortunately you, you a lot of times you're going to have to do the work yourself and i realize that you know that seems overwhelming to some people but it's a phone call. And honestly, I mean, half of my morning is spent with my headset on walking around on hold with, you know, an insurance company or a doctor's office or a nurse's line. And I just do it while I'm doing dishes or, I mean, honestly, it's, it's, it's real, it's a pain, but it's not really a hardship at the end of the day. If your health you're talking about, just make the calls, put in the time, do the work because, you know, if, especially if you're dealing with something that's, you know, getting worse, you know, the longer you wait or you're in pain or you're sick or your kid is sick, you know, these are, these are phone calls well worth making. Just do it. Suck yeah. it up. Totally agree. But, but the, you also have this interesting acceptance like the, it's going gonna, it's gonna to stink. I'm going to sit on hold. So yeah. which, which saves your, like the rage and the anger doesn't help you. Yeah. Expect, expect, I always expect, to, expect to get people to expect release. Expect the worst and hope for the best, right? right? So 
expect that you're going to be on hold, expect it's going to take longer than expected, expect that there's going to be delays at the doctor's office, uh, or sometimes your scans may not have arrived on time. Do everything you can within your control to make sure that you've done everything to make yourself the easiest patient that they've ever seen, right? Make their job as easy as possible. Make sure that you've filled out all the paperwork that you need to fill out. Sometimes they, now with COVID, they have a lot of times, um, they'll email you the forms in advance, like if it's a new office visit, or uh, they'll send it through a patient portal and you just fill out all your symptoms, your patient history. So if you can do that before you get to the office, um, all of your medic list all of your medications and the dosages, or have that written down. If you have all of that ready to go, that makes that doctor or nurse's job so much easier, and they're going to be much more willing to work with you. So make make it as pleasant an experience for both of you, and and accept that like if you've done everything within your power to make it as easy on them, and they still have delays or they still have problems, you know that's outside of your control. And all you can do is make sure you've got your snacks, make sure you've got your headsets, you listen to a podcast or whatever, whatever. You know if you can discreetly answer emails in the waiting room, you know make make the best use of your time that you can, and understand that like this is part of the game, unfortunately. Yeah. Okay. I have one more question for you, and then I'm going to let you get on with your life. <laughs> you have had a lot of unpleasant procedures yeah. and they're really anxiety raising and they're really frightening. Yeah. So how do you prepare yourself for something that's unpleasant? Um, I make sure that I know the team that's going to be involved in my procedure, like an operation where like it's actually in the OR or if it's something in an office procedure that I know the team, I know the nurse, mm -hmm. I know PA, I know the anesthesiologist, I know the, the pre-op nurse, the post-op nurse, whoever that is, like I make sure that like I know Martha and Linda and Brian. So they all look at me as a person. <laughs> and, Even if you're just coming in there, you didn't know them already. Like you're going no, in there. Within 20 minutes, they're my best friends. Right. Like we're all in this together, right? We're, we're doing this. Mm -hmm. And they understand that they're part of my team and I'm, I'm part of their team. And, and and I, I've had 33 eye surgeries and I always tell them I'm nervous. I'm scared. I'm, I'm nervous and I'm nervous about the outcome. And as soon as you, you um, verbalize that and tell them how you're feeling, it changes the dynamic in the room. Like they, they, they really want to make it as, as good of experience as, as good of an experience as possible for you. And they're, they're there to make you comfortable, keep you out of pain you know, and the anesthesiologist, man, make sure you make good friends with them because they're in charge of the drugs. So, so if you're worried about waking up in pain, you're worried about not being anesthetized enough during the procedure, you say, I don't want to know anything that happens to me. I don't want to be able to talk. I don't want to be awake. You know, make sure that you, they clearly understand your wishes and that they, you, you clearly understand their strategy before you go in. I think that brings a huge level of comfort as far as taking the sting and the scare out of procedures. Um, and then under, really understanding before you go home, pain, pain management is something that people are afraid to ask for pain meds. And understand that you know there's a huge opioid crisis in this country. I just left a pain management specialist and they want me to take narcotics for my shoulder right now. And I'm very concerned about taking narcotics long-term for obvious reasons. Opioid crisis is huge in America. But understand there's a time and a place after procedures that for use of certain med pain medications and that you do need to not be a hero for three or four days after a procedure. Everybody thinks, well, I'll just take them when I need them. Pain is very challenging to manage if you wait until you're in pain to do it. And especially after a procedure, you're usually anesthetized or there's a nerve block, so you're not feeling anything immediately afterwards. You think, oh, I'm fine. Just, I'll be okay with Tylenol. Take the pain meds. If you need them, you have them. Uh, but make sure you're communicating this before your procedure because afterwards you're going to be loopy. You're going to be out of it. You're going to be eager to get home. You're probably hungry because you haven't had to eat anything before the procedure, right? So making sure that you've communicated your fear, your pain management, and who's going and making sure that you have um, people in place when you get home to take care of you and help you with, because you'd be surprised how incapacitated you are after, after procedures. Yeah. Um, and, and articulating all this to your doctor, maybe in the office visit before, before, before the procedure, making sure that you understand all this stuff. And, and if you can get through some of this stuff during the office visit, great, but make darn sure before you go into that OR that you've talked to everybody in that room, the nurse and the anesthesiologist and your doctor about these things, your pain management and your comfort level during the procedure so that they understand that, like how things are gonna go. And it'll make your experience so much more pleasant. Great advice.
All right, anything else? I've, I've taken a lot of your time. No, I, I, like I think the, the thing is, um, I, I just want people to understand that you're in the driver's seat and, and really uh, medicine is a business and it's a frustrating business to deal with, but um, these people ultimately went into this business to help people. And so as flustered and busy as they may seem, if you can get their attention at the right time and you get the right people within their circle, if they're too busy, make sure that somebody within their circle or their office really understands you as a person. They, they may not know that you're a pilot. Maybe they don't know that you run a publishing company and that you've got meetings all day and so you're going to be sitting. And so, oh gosh, you have a tailbone injury. Like how can we make her more comfortable for her because she's sitting for eight hours a day at a desk? Things like that. They don't know your life unless you tell them. So better to share these these details with them so they go oh well I didn't know that you did Pilates or I didn't know you did this wow well that's not what you should be doing with this shoulder right now so share share with them Amy Dixon or Sarah the person so they get a better idea of how to manage you and keep you moving as best you can and keep you healthy great advice all right well I wish you well let me remind everybody your website is amydixonusa.com you should follow her what's your Instagram following and your no site, no limits. It's Instagram and uh, Twitter. Okay, yeah, do that because your story is incredible. Your tenacity, like what you deal with every day. Honestly, I use you. The days that I get up and I and I go, I don't feel like it. I think of you. I go, okay, you can do it. I can do it. No joke. Um, hey, we are lucky to live in the best country in the world for medicine. And as frustrating as the system can be, and as backwards as it sometimes is, we are lucky that we have it. So I count my blessings that I have thousands of doctors at my fingertips if I need them. In so many ways to be lucky to be living in this country, no question about it. All right, amydixonusa.com to check out Amy, to donate to her. Let me also say one thing. We actually, on bottomlineinc.com, I'm going to put a link in the chat on this. We have a... a, a questionnaire actually that we had put together for people to take to the doctor with questions to ask just kind of yes. a great outline of good. Just a good kind of self-advocacy question so i'm going to put that into the link so that people can download that for themselves awesome um, you could steal that you could use that when you go, go do your speeches it's all yours <laughs> all right amy thank you so much everybody thank you very very much come back share let everybody know about these facebook lives I'm talking to blind Olympic paratriathlete Amy Dixon about her medical struggles over the last 20 years and lessons she's learned about how to quote-unquote work the system after 33 surgeries, countless tests, and thousands and thousands of dollars of prescription medication. Amy's on a mission to help others become their own best patient advocates. Helping people powerfully manage the healthcare system is one example of what our flagship publication, Bottom Line Personal, is all about. Helping people do better and feel better. We talk to only the best, most qualified experts to provide actionable advice, not just in healthcare and emotional health, but in all aspects of life, including financial planning, great gift ideas, how to save money on travel, insurance snafus, smart tax strategies, improving your relationships, and so much more. Bottom Line Personal has been helping people lead more informed and vibrant lives for nearly 50 years with our actionable and double fact-checked advice. Subscribe today and get a free bonus book, Bottom Line's Best Bets, full of some of our experts' greatest tips of all time. Just go to bottomlineinc.com forward slash expert podcast. That's bottomlineinc.com forward slash expert podcast.